Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. I also wanted to remind folks that, of course, uh, Expanding Mind has a pretty big archive at this point. Uh, you can call in to PRN at 1-701-719-0890 to listen to uh, some recent uh, episodes through your phone, or of course you can uh, subscribe to it the way that everybody subscribes to podcasts. And uh, I have an archive as well on my own website, technosis.com, T-E-C-H-G-N-O-S-I-S.com. All right, enough of the uh, of the uh, razzmatazz. Uh, on to the show. Um, you know, I started out, uh, I was always interested in uh, new technologies, you know, starting around the late 1980s, I was reading books about uh future of computers, about uh, algorithms, uh, about the history of technology. Uh, but I always kind of took it from a humanities point of view, and I always took it as a sort of point of pride uh, that I knew a lot more about science and technology and really could have been a technologist, a mathematician, a computer programmer, but got seduced by the humanities and uh, cultural criticism and writing, and that's sort of what I ended up ended up doing. But it gave me a, a taste for a certain kind of what you could call technology criticism, a certain way of approaching particularly the, uh, the gadgets in our lives that link us to these much larger, more uh, challenging to imagine and understand uh, networks and institutions uh, and uh, flows of, of, of data and money uh, and ideology. And, uh, you know, as, a, as I rode the, the technology wave in my own peculiar uh, quasi-mystical way, um, I found that that kind of uh, criticism was harder and harder to find, um, that much of what people, what would constitute a technology criticism tended to be uh, either sort of obsessively in the fold, uh, people who knew their technical uh, details, who were able to uh, describe or understand uh, the particular issues involved, uh, but also often got kind of myopically involved with the possibilities and the politics and the business around those things in ways that made it harder for uh, people who are interested in a broader view or a humanities kind of view to integrate it. At the same time, you have people in the sort of humanities side of the fence, uh, cult, you know, cultural writers, historians, uh, people interested in politics, uh, you know, in the future, in the, in the problems of capitalism, sort of misunderstanding technology uh, a lot of the time and kind of reading it either, you know, finding utopia where they should have been suspicious and uh, being very pessimistic about things that actually uh, had some potential for good. And so uh, I'm incredibly happy to say that there that this trend that I've uh, noticed over the last couple of decades, and of course, there's tons of exceptions, uh, but one of my favorite books that I've read recently uh, really bucks the trend. Uh, this is Radical Technologies by Adam Greenfield, a name that I had heard, but I hadn't actually uh, uh, stumbled across his work directly other than a few articles uh, in The Guardian. Um, he's, a, uh, he's an urbanist and a technologist, a designer, and uh, still a, a, very, uh, a very smart humanities 
uh, fellow with a, a strong grounding in uh, in politics in a in a real deal way that again I find rare among people who uh, who know their technology inside uh, and out and he's uh, probably best known for earlier and uh, increasingly cranky remarks he's made about the smart city uh, and the sort of utopian vision of a kind of integrated information flowing, uh, the responsive uh, er experience of, of the urban landscape. And so he's brought some very sophisticated critiques uh, of that uh, vision to our, you know, into the conversation about uh, smart cities and the the Internet of Things. And uh, radical technologies uh, takes an even a broader, Approach. Uh, it's I. I would classify it as required reading. I and I don't often say that, though. I often enjoy the books uh, that we're talking about here on on expanding mind. This is one that's a little bit more like you know, it's more meat and potatoes, folks. And part of uh, Adam's point, and he makes it very strongly at the at the end of this book, which covers a, a, a wide variety of radical technologies, meaning the technologies that are already here or just around the horizon that threaten to uh, transform things in really dr drastic and dramatic ways that nobody can really understand. And there's the possibility that within that radicalism, there's there's really positive things that might come of it. And indeed, some people on the left, some progressive folks have really embraced uh, certain of these technologies as as potential uh, ameliorations of monster the monster capitalism that we're in. Uh, but the real question is just, you know, what what's going to happen? How how are we going to integrate these things? Is it even possible to think about uh, integrating them? And so, in order to to really go into this, you got to spend some time uh, getting a better handle than the newspapers give you about what's going on in the technologies. And I, and by that, I even mean some of the information press, like you know, whatever, Wired News or whatever. <laughs> you can learn stuff from those things, but you got to do like another layer of sometimes tedious work in order to really understand the way that these sort of seemingly innocuous gadgets that we actually interact with on a daily level tie into these much larger frameworks and uh, networks of concern, of, of politics, of uh, ecology, of economy. And so Adam does an amazing job of synthesizing uh, information and tons of research about technologies like augmented reality, like cryptocurrencies, like the blockchain, like artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and really giving you a, a dense, rich um, understanding of some of the dynamics behind the surface of these uh, technologies, and at the same time offering very cogent critiques from a progressive perspective that's also very culturally uh, nuanced. And, and that's the part that really sets him apart from a lot of uh, writers and even critics uh, of these de uh, developments is that his sensibility is one, at least personally, I find incredibly appealing, a kind of humor, uh, a kind of wit, uh, a kind of willingness to look at the, uh, the, the, the grim uh, meat hook reality that's, uh, that's being installed <laughs> before our eyes. Um, but, uh, you know, kind of drawing you into it. So I, I, I really uh, encourage folks to check out this book more than most things that I talk about on the, on the show, because as Adam points out at the very end, if we are going to engage these issues as progressives or just as people trying to keep our shit together, we have to understand them a little better than we do now, partly to be able to recognize hype, 
partly to be able to uh, anticipate things that are going to happen based on the history of technology, a more fine-grained history than we usually have, because uh, most of us don't actually aren't actually encouraged to learn very much about technology or to think about it critically, either by the people who are selling us the stuff or by our own tendencies to just want to get through our lives or to do the things we want to do with our friends, and et cetera, et cetera, unless we're actually making our are living off of it. And even then, we're mostly just looking at the very narrow zone that we're working with and often within the kind of corporate context that these technologies are taken up with. So it requires a different kind of investment to bring technology criticism into your own mind and into your own life as a way of, of kind of at least being aware of, the, of these processes that are going on, of course, m most of them outside of our immediate uh, control. So enough smoke has been blown for the intro. Uh, <laughs> Adam, thanks for uh, joining us on Expanding Mind. Hey, Eric, it's my pleasure. I mean, I've been reading you probably a quarter century now, so it's it's a real honor and a privilege. Well, it, you know, it's it's uh, I just really love this book, and I've been telling people about it a lot. And I mean, I want to dive into it. We only got an hour. There's tons of stuff to talk about. But before that, I have to ask you a biographical question which is yeah, looking shoot. at the Wikipedia page. I'm like, what <laughs> compelled you in 1995 <laughs> to enlist in the United States Army Special Operations Command as a psychological operations specialist? It doesn't seem to jive with either your previous life studying cultural studies or your future life as a designer working for Nokia and writing these kind of technology criticism books. What was... What, uh, <laughs> you know, there's two ways of answering that question. Uh, and they're both honest, right? They're both real. The first is uh, the, the sort of material explanation is that I was recently broke, divorced, living in Seattle, um, a city that I couldn't wait to get out of, frankly, no offense to anybody who might happen to be listening in Seattle. Um, and honestly, so broke that enlisting in the army at that point was the surest ticket out of there uh, and the most reliable path towards some kind of guaranteed income over the short term, because it, I had at that point made myself pretty decisively unemployable. Um, the other way of answering that is that I, for all that I was aware of it, uh, doesn't mean that I was completely immune to the ambient masculinist nonsense that circulates in our culture. And you, of all people, probably be aware of how the army had, in certainly in my youth, had uh, recuperated the language of the human potential movement you know, some of the Lieutenant Colonel Jim Chan and stuff about be all you can be. And um, and so I, I thought, you know, I was sort of a student of limit experiences. And I thought, well, you know, after you've pushed yourself into um, exploring silent meditation and Zen practice, after you've pushed yourself into triathlon, after you've pushed yourself into um, some experiences that we might think of as being along the BDSM spectrum, um, you know, what other extreme things can you do for yourself? Uh, and one of the extreme things that it turned out I could do for myself in the mid-90s in Seattle, Washington, was enlist in first in the reserve um, and then get myself kicked up to a, um, a special operations unit um, and try that on for size. Well, I think that's a pretty good, uh, pretty good explanation. It actually makes sense uh, more, particularly from that kind of limit experience uh, point of view. 
Um, and and there also seems to be something I, I can only imagine that you got some really good stuff out of being a psychological working in psychological operations, because one of the things that I like about your approach and that I think is so important is that um, when people write about technology from a critical point of view, let's see, they're 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 you know whether they're leftists or they're uh, defending uh, lifeways that are being you know uh, blanketed by new technologies, they they often fall into a kind of abstraction where you start you start talking about the larger forces that are involved uh, and how these sort of large abstractions are eroding or colonizing our felt sense of everyday reality. But the, the people who are talking about it also kind of get into that abstraction, whereas what you continually do throughout the book is sort of bring it back home in these moments to exactly what happens when the, when the human psyche meets these sometimes unthinkable abstractions and the way we react and how those experiences themselves are being changed and subtly and sometimes not so subtly altered by changing technological conditions. So there's a kind of attention to psychology and experience there that uh, is really striking in a way. I mean, the, the just how much is happening at the level of our immediate experience, the flows of emotion, the way in which our attention is being modulated and changed, uh, how our desire or fear is being mobilized in the system, all the subtle trade-offs that are happening on the edge of consciousness, almost like subconscious, you know, whatever, like the, the, the simple, like simple examples, like when it is in an argument that somebody reaches for the phone and, and Googles <laughs> a question, how that has changed over the last five years, how the porosity of these things have shifted. And you can't really address that without paying attention to the psychology of the everyday uh, and how that sort of most familiar part, part of our lives is changing, being colonized, being reframed in all these ways, almost against our own acknowledgement. Like we almost don't even want to see how much that stuff uh, is happening. So. I mean, you're, you're, where does your, your interest in that kind of psychological domain come from in terms of looking at these new technologies? Well, you know, I'm really glad you pick up on that because it may be the single most important thing I have to say in that book. Um, it, it comes from just accepting what my senses have been trying to tell me, which is that, um, you know, the overwhelming experience, at least my overwhelming experience of what I like to think of as late, late capitalism um, is one of anxiety and melancholy, a pr the most profound melancholy, and, and a kind of a claustrophobia, a lack of the spaciousness that perhaps, you know, we used to experience in life. And, you know, I could say a couple of things. I could say, is this maybe my own experience? And I'm overgeneralizing from my own particular experience. I could say, is this an artifact of the time of life that I'm in that you know, this feels novel to me because I'm in a new phase of my existence and I, I wasn't feeling these things before because they weren't germane to me. And so I, I want to kind of control for those possibilities. And in asking around, in trying to evoke um, other people's experiences of these technologies, and, and very importantly to, to me, not merely people who are similar to me in terms of their uh, class background or experiential background or, or national origin or any of that, but asking, you know, most of the people that I encounter, 
to kind of explain what they are experiencing and try to bring to the surface um, what their affective experience of living in this technologically mediated age is. I find that actually this anxiety and this melancholy, they're not particular to me. They are, in fact, fairly widely shared. And what happens constantly to me is as I begin to, you know, spin out one of these scenarios, uh, people start to nod. And as a matter of fact, before I'm even finished with the sentence, they've got, you know, three or four or five other examples that they're just kind of bursting to share, bursting to relate to somebody that, that might actually be able to, to understand what they're talking about. And to me, that's something that for all the power analysis, for all the analysis of, of power relations, that I, I think is cru uh, a crucial part of any act of criticism, for all the attempt to evoke um, and bring to the surface the politics of emergent technologies and, and what I call the colonization of everyday life by information processing. Um, to me, one of the most critical aspects is that we're, we're kind of painting ourselves into a corner psycho-emotionally and affectively, and nobody really wants to talk about that. So, you know, I, I have a little bit more room maybe in publishing with Verso. I have a little bit more room in maybe writing in The Guardian uh, than I might uh, in some other contexts to begin to explore and unfold and and um, try and figure out just what's going on in these spaces and, and maybe return some agency to people so that they can, in becoming aware that this is happening not just to themselves, but, uh, you know, fairly commonly, fairly broadly, maybe we can do something about it together. Yeah, it's funny when you talk about that, Malachi, I mean, there's one part of the book that was that really uh, struck me where you were talking about the Internet of Things and you were laying out the problems, the political problems, the power problems, the way in which, you know, uh, we're really just by by allowing uh, networked objects into the space of our everyday, we're just acceding to a, just a whole other order of, of control immediately, but then also in terms of all the data that's being collected on us and et cetera, et cetera. So we're, I'm, you know, following this critical argument, then you kind of just take this little turn and you go, what is the dominant, you know, affective quality of these technologies? It's sadness. Yes. Yeah. There's this sadness in the way in which uh, things are changing, not just nostalgically. That's the thing. It's, I think the error, you know, I mean, you, I mean I'll, I'll take it one step back. I mean, one, one thing I want to say is that you're born just a year after me, there does seem to be a generational quality as well because I was, we were shaped by by an analog world. Sure. We remember not just the literal kind of space of possibility, but just the fact that spaces were unknown, that we were walking home from school, that no one could find us or whatever. So we have a certain kind of orientation that the younger people just don't have, never had. And I think that, you know, maybe gives us a little extra spin on the melancholy uh, but it's not just about nostalgia. That's the thing that I had to realize is like that it's actually something about the way in which our psyches map themselves into these spaces is that there's kind of a place uh, of sadness that we have to kind of like acknowledge or work from or integrate. I mean, it's because it's the, the, the tendency is to go, oh, my God, I'm sad or I'm, I'm depressed. Oh, that's because I what well, I should be able to kind of. Uh, ride with these changes or, you know, exploit them for my own desires or take advantage yeah. of the possibilities that are being opened up. And that that's part of the framework of the way the Internet works is making your, your own little crappy life seem miserable and small because there's so much other stuff going on, blah, blah, blah. 
But uh, how, learning how to work with those feelings, I mean, talking about them, of course, is, is you know, one of the, the great things to do. But how do you feel, how do you think our being aware of our emotions and working on that level of affect in our own experience can help us understand what's going on. It can not just be like a, a block or a bummer that, that yeah, takes away yeah. our energy. How, how can it be become fuel? Well, it's the first step towards solidarity for me. I mean, the, you know, the, the, first, the very first thing is being able to name your condition. And then the, the step beyond that, which is not automatic and requires effort and requires um, sort of a certain kind of self-discipline, is understanding that... Um, you know, you, you have a common circumstance with other people, and, and that is the ground of potential solidarity and therefore potential corrective action. You know, I, I grew up um, the son of a litigator, right? My dad uh, does class action suits against big corporations. And the interesting thing about the way a class action is set up is that there's always an individual named plaintiff, and, and that plaintiff gets to stand as the avatar for a whole group of people and, and the language, even when I was like seven or eight years old, the language around this really captivated me. It's that person's name on behalf of themselves and all others similarly situated. And, you know, there's something in that language that has stayed with me throughout my entire life. What I'm hoping here is that in naming the affect that arises out of our exposure to, uh, you know, a constant mediation by smartphones and a constant mediation by wearable biometric devices and a constant mediation by smart home assistants. We understand um, that we're part of a class, that there are, in fact, others similarly situated to us, and that we represent a potential political vector, certainly uh, a market vector, and um, potentially at least the ground of some kind of coordinated collective action. But, you know, this isn't, again, this is not an automatic process. It's not like the light bulb goes off uh, above your head and, and you suddenly find yourself part of, uh, you know, a, a protest group marching down the street, you know, demanding redress. Um, there's admitting that this is going on. It, it, there's the tracing it back to its sources. There's understanding the political economic circumstance it arises within. Um, there's asking what other kinds of possible futures could we inhabit if we were so inclined. And, and there's asking what sorts of, of collective and concerted action might be necessary to get us to those places. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 that makes a lot, of, a lot of sense to me as a way of kind of uh, massing uh, these responses in a way that could could lead to things that we're you know we're, we're grasping for but aren't aren't entirely uh, clear. Um, you know it's a challenge with the, with talking with you because part of me wants to sit there and go through some of the the chapters where you actually explain in 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 uh, understandable detail how uh, technologies like the blockchain work. And I think that anybody thinking about the future has to have at least a kind of Working knowledge of what these technologies are, uh, uh, because it's, they're going to they're they're already important. They're going to be more important, and also there's so many claims that are being made about them. I mean, it, just to take the blockchain, you know, when I first started to read about it as not a particular, you know, that wasn't something I was particularly invested in understanding. You know, there was all these claims about anonymity. Oh, it's this thing that allows anonymity. And of course, it's like no, it doesn't actually. It's a le it's a <laughs> distributed ledger that keeps record of every, of all transactions. It's it, it can be used to do shady things, but it's not 
it's not anonymous at all the way that people are presenting it. And so even from a point where I wasn't even very technologically sophisticated about this particular thing, it took me a lot longer and talking to a lot of people to get a handle on it, that even I could recognize that there was just this profound kind of confusion uh, from the you know from from the get go about about these projects, uh, about that particular uh, uh, set of, of projects and technologies. Yep. Yep. Um, but the, and they're also but it also gets caught up with with um, progressive desire as well as I mean some people anarchists uh, and and e and pe even folks on the left have seen oh well maybe the blockchain is going to allow us to create the kinds of environments that will we can outrun cap you know capitalism or outrun the state and allow something else to to happen uh, so there's so much detail we would take would take the next half an hour to kind of go through <laughs> all this stuff so I, I I'm going to resist that to a certain degree. Uh, and and try to stay a little bit more on a on a broader zone. Okay. Uh, but so where I would go from that one is more about the question of how, as we try to understand new technologies like the blockchain, like machine learning, whatever, we're sitting here, we're, we're reading, we're do, doing our lives, we engage them with them maybe through our business to some degree. Um, how do we begin to understand the role the role that belief, that yes. fantasy, that hype, play in how the stories of these radical technologies are being told? Oh, man, that's such a good question. Because, you know, when you talk about the confusion that arises around something like the blockchain, uh, you know, the, I, I want to modify that. I want to call that that motivated confusion. You know, it's definitely, it is um, a perplexity or an opacity that serves a specific set of interests. And the set of interests, you know, are those of the people that develop the blockchain and are enthusiastic for it because it um, enacts the sets of values that they're um, that they believe in and they want to see instantiated in the world. And um, those values are not necessarily the ones that are represented to us as being what gets enacted when we install something like the blockchain in our lives. But what happens further, and what I find most frustrating, is that. You know, it seems like the mainstream media, if I can use that expression, um, you know, wide, wide sectors of the media have kind of a general positive orientation toward what they regard as the future. And and there's something really insidious that happens anytime you see the BBC or the New York Times or even, you know, The Guardian, the paper that I, I occasionally write for, talk about the future. There is this profound tendency to collapse the future with technological development, right? These these two ideas, these two entirely separate ideas get elided. And so when people say, well, what kind of future do you want to live in? Well, uh, most often we're no longer talking about, do you, do you believe in a future of social equity? Do you believe in a future of expanded human potential or, or trans or post-human potential? No, you know, you're asking, well, do you wanna live in uh, a future where our groceries get delivered to us by drones and uh, you know we we pay for things at the checkout counter by using uh, facial scans or something like that, and so the the very first thing that we need to do is decouple these things from one another and and ask of the media representations that that we encounter um, when we talk about the future are we legitimately talking about um, a space of possibility or are we merely talking about potentials for technological development? And the second thing that happens is that. Um, when uh, you do see reportage about potentials for technological development, they are the most extraordinarily non-critical, 
non-skeptical, credulous, um, kind of gee whiz uh, sort of, of tenor to them. And, you know, even um, something, you know, I, I grew up thinking, I grew up in the States, right? And so I grew up thinking that maybe the BBC uh, was in some sense a, a deeper or more reliable media source than the ones that, that I was familiar with. When you look at reportage about the future on the BBC, it's like, oh, you know, Hyperloop enters testing phase and, and um, you know, they're talking about who who's won Elon Musk's competition to develop a pod for the Hyperloop system. For, for those of your listeners who don't know about it, is uh, an ostensible transportation system uh, of the future that would operate uh, subway cars in vacuum tubes and evacuated tubes beneath the surface or possibly even mounted on monorail um, pylons uh, and and whip people from, you know, Los Angeles to San Francisco in 45 minutes or something like that. Um, and so many assumptions get folded into that uh, that are never unpacked in the space of a, of a 30 second segment or a 60 second segment or or even regrettably, a 30-minute segment on that. Um, first is, why is the BBC reporting uh, on something that, in essence, is giving free advertising to, to Elon Musk's um, private concerns, right? They're, they're advertising um, a developmental milestone that uh, was achieved by a, a private commercial enterprise. Uh, that's the first thing that I would, I would take pains to point out. The second thing is, um, what kinds of claims are being made for that technological development, and do they have any point of contact at all with reality? And and from there, you know, you're like, well, why are we focusing uh, money and time and effort and energy on potentially trying to develop a future transportation technology um, when the social, political, economic questions about the technologies we already have are completely unresolved? And in fact, we might be able to make more of a positive change. Um, you know, through legislation, through, uh, you know, something requiring um, carpooling or that, you know, more people share vehicles or that, uh, you know, internal combustion engines be phased out earlier than the, the year 2040 or something like that. So, well, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just saying, it's just remarkable how much the, the magic bullet is, is still with us. I mean, you know, again, I, I, I sort of came of age thinking about these things starting in the late 80s and through through the 90s where there was you know much more explicit utopianism certainly about uh the internet and the the long boom and you know all sorts of <laughs> yeah. fantasies were very close to the surface uh to to my credit i was enough of a pessimist that i was more interested in the in the evolving mythology than in actually believing that these things were going to happen. I was always kind of a critical uh, crank. But what I thought was going to happen is when those things didn't happen, when the new economy did not become the new economy, when a lot of people lost their jobs, when, you know, all the, the not to mention later shocks in the in the market, et cetera, as we entered, uh, you know, the, the, the new century, uh, that, you know, that the magic bullet thing would kind of go away. You couldn't really get away with it anymore. You had to make a more practical kind of argument from it. But in a weird way, it's like a kind of zombie. It just, it keeps sure. showing up. There's a new technology, and then the, the zombie of magic bullet is sort of smart grinning and pointing out the possible futures, and we just kind of go along with it as if, and you make this point towards the end of the book, as if potential is the equivalent still of fact, of reality, like the potential of whatever uh, uh, digital fabrication, 3D printers to 
uh, outrun scarcity and create this sort of world of abundance of distributed information. Yeah, on some level, yes, that potential is there. But then the way that we actually think about or experience these possibilities, it's like we we just want to go towards that magic bullet story because is it just too difficult to think otherwise? Is it because we've been hoodwinked? Is it because there isn't a tradition of sort of technology criticism the way there is about other social formations, about academics or doctors or the medical profession? I mean, there's other things where there's more of a sense of, of, of cynicism even or skepticism in popular discourse, but somehow it just never really happened around these things that are, if anything, more revolutionary and already more disturbing and disappointing in some ways than things like the medical industry or whatever. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I, I mean, so what happened? Know, how did that happen? How, how, how do we change it? You know, with that, just to get the criticality going, let alone deal with the actual problems, just to get that kind of uh, sense of I'm holding this device in my hand. The people who designed it want me to feel a certain way about it. They also want to do a lot of things that they're not telling me about. It's tied into you know, labor practices in China. It's tied into uh, the, the logics of cloud computing, of, of privacy issues. Like all those things are bundled in this, this stupid little, you know, bit of, of sci-fi that I otherwise don't really think about and just use in this kind of casual manner. How, you know, how do we bring those kind of things together to create a kind of critical technological engagement? I think the first thing that we need to be aware of is a process that I've become acutely aware of myself in the last decade, um, which I think of as, uh, you know, desire and denial are both very, very powerful things. And I think when the desire for something is thwarted and, uh, you know, the, the, the denial begins to take over from that, what you see instead of a reckoning with the reality principle, instead of a reckoning with the kind of material ground plane um, what you see instead is a kind of doubling down. And we've seen this, you know, politically, socially. And I think we see it in the realm of um, our, our encounter with, with new technologies as well. We always expect the next gadget to fix things for us, right? And so, you know, we, we bring the smartphone into our lives and it does all of these wonderful things for us. And I, 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 here I'm not being cynical. I mean, I think the smartphone in many ways is a legitimately utopian artifact. Um, but it also creates problems, you know, it, it creates problems uh, through the way it compels us to, to mediate experience and, and it just creates practical problems for us. And so uh, this creates a market opportunity, right? And so all of a sudden we have the Apple Watch to mediate some of the issues that the Apple iPhone creates. Um, and I, I think there's a lot of pressure on a product like that uh, to, to serve as a buffer for some of the, the less pleasant aspects of interaction with everyday life that are set up from you know, the technology immediately before it. And, and there's this sort of continual ratcheting where um, you know, we think, okay, life, the, the pace of life just keeps accelerating and I keep feeling more and more overwhelmed and I'm going to have a virtual assistant that is going to take care of my calendar and keep me from making these same mistakes and keep me from being late for appointments and uh, keep me from double booking myself. And, uh, you know, every other means that we use to, to repair the damage that we've done to ourselves through embracing the previous generation of technology. 
And yet we never question, we never step outside of this cycle um, far enough to realize how it's operating on us. Uh, most of us don't. And, and so, you know, to your question, yes, absolutely. I, I think that one of the things I've tried to do um, is, is to read technology like a text, you know, and then, and then expose it to the same sort of critique that, you know, I grew up reading things like, like Dick Hebdige, like, you know, subculture, the meaning of style, or the texts that he pointed me at in turn, um, you know, Raymond Williams, cultural studies, or uh, Roland Balt. You know, people who are uh, capable of looking at anything from uh, a, a newspaper uh, advertisement uh, to a car to the cut of a suit as a text and beginning to ask, you know, what sorts of meanings this material semiotic knot sets up in culture, how it's used, uh, what it implies, and what sorts of relations it, it makes available on the one hand and, and what sorts of relations it makes less likely on the other. I think we need to be asking precisely that set of questions around network digital information technologies. And that requires a kind of literacy. And what I find is that most of us are scared to death of developing that literacy. I, you know, in direct contrast to the opening up and the excitement that people uh, display when you begin to talk about some of the frustrations and the melancholy that rolls off the technology, when you begin to talk about how things work, their eyes glaze over and they say, you know, this is for other people. This is for the, the techies and, and the geeks. And this is for people who are really into that. And the moment we do that, we see this entire terrain, you know, which I would argue is the commanding heights of the contemporary political economy. We see this entire terrain to the people who are uh, able to exploit it toward their own end, um, you know, highly qualified to do so, highly equipped to do so, and to do so in a way that leaves us cut entirely out of the decision loop. So I think we need to demystify and, and kind of disenchant, actively disenchant this ability that, that just invoking the idea of, of futuristic technology, this hold that the idea of futuristic technology has over our minds. Yeah, I mean, it, one of the, the, the other dimensions of that uh, is the fact that as these uh, potential, these radical technologies are becoming more radical and as we're looking at for example, uh, how are, do we interpret, embrace, accept, resist uh, the claims of artificial intelligence or the claims of, of machine learning um, as they spread extremely rapidly through uh, power, through the idea of jobs, through the idea of expertise, through the, the, the very practice of making decisions. As all that happens, uh, our enchanted ideas actually feed into the situation. It's not simply that we just we lack the critical capacity to understand enough about how these things work to be able to to critically attack certain principles when we see people you know trying to shove it down our throats. but it's the it's the flip side, which is that we're already ready with the fantasy of 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 robots. We're already ready with the fantasy of post-human intelligence that is making decisions. And so, when somebody is trying to sell their system as being artificially intelligent, before we even get to the determination of whether it's actually intelligent, whatever that means, whether it's the Turing test or something else, blah, 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 before we even get to that phase, we're in this realm of hype, of, yeah. of, of companies putting forward claims that they can't really uh, uh, back up. 
And there's a corresponding resonance in our heads uh, that is w willing to go with that story. And you, you, uh, the, one of the great examples of this that you provide is uh, Tesla's decision to name a certain component of their onboard operating system autopilot. Yeah. And so yeah. could you talk about that example? Because it really gets to that crossover of fantasy and hype and, and the, the actual technological issues involved. Yeah, yeah. This is a, a really crystal clear example of this process for me. Um, so Tesla cars, you know, extraordinarily well-equipped with sensors and actuators. They're, they're um, constantly siphoning up data uh, about the environment that they're being operated in. And they're making thousands of minute decisions a second based on that data. And they're sharing it, mind you, you know, with, with the mothership, uh, in, in essence, you know, through the cloud with all the other Tesla cars that are on the road. So every Tesla car is constantly learning about what it is to be a car, what it is to be operated in the manifold of, you know, physical environments, legal environments, and, and uh, psychophysiological capacities of the human driver. It's kind of constantly learning what, what all of that implies to the act of operating a vehicle. And Tesla itself is, you know, through market pressure and the pressure to differentiate and, and evolve and, and be seen as being futuristic, is constantly trying to provide their cars uh, with new capabilities. And one of their new capabilities is something they launched as part of their operating system 7 rollout a couple of years ago, and it was called Autopilot. And, um, you know, to most people, that implies that the car can autonomously operate itself. I think that is a pretty clear implication of, of the, um, the nomenclature. Actually, what autopilot is, is a very sophisticated and very capable station-keeping algorithm. It's a lane-keeping algorithm. It's sort of an autocorrecting feature so that you know, if you're on a highway in a lane and you're driving, you're operating the vehicle, and you begin to stray out of that lane, um, the the uh, autonomous environment recognition sensors on board the vehicle will help redirect you, right? They'll take control of the vehicle and they'll return you to, to safe operation in a lane. That's what autopilot is. That's what autopilot does. Um, now, if I were running Tesla, and obviously I'm not a billionaire and I'm probably a little bit too honest for my own good, sure, I might have offered that feature, but I never would have called it what Tesla called it. I would have called it auto lane. Autolane just isn't sexy enough for the market. They've got to, you know, reach beyond that. They've got to aspire. And in calling it autopilot, I think that they imply something fairly dangerous, which is that you can surrender control of the vehicle entirely. You can go off duty. You can relax your vigilance. You can watch a video on your iPad as your Tesla is cruising down the interstate at 90 miles an hour. And as it happens, you know, last July, uh, one of the first drivers who was equipped with autopilot took that proposition at its word. He's like, okay, I'm going to, you know, let my attention drift. And the Tesla that he was operating uh, encountered a set of circumstances that it didn't recognize. I'm not going to go into the particulars, but suffice to say that uh, he probably could have recovered operation of the vehicle safely at that moment um, if he had been paying attention, but he wasn't. And autopilot steered him straight into the side of a semi. And it was a fatality collision. He was uh, the driver was killed by this collision. And I would argue to you, and I personally believe that 
the reason that that driver is no longer among us is because he had invested entirely too much faith in the proposition that's being made by a word, by an idea. And as I say in the book, you know, um, our beliefs about the future exert a, a very strange kind of gravitation over the present. In a lot of ways, it doesn't even matter whether these systems ever do work as advertised. It's that we believe that they do. Um, as the driver of the Tesla found out uh, to his uh, to his ultimate detriment. Um, but this belief operates in a couple of different dimensions as well. Obviously, this belief is the kind of thing that conditions uh, societal investments, you know, material investments, the, the sorts of allocations of finance we make when we decide, uh, you know, maybe some municipality somewhere can be persuaded to invest their limited degree of, of financial resources in developing a hypertube network, a hyperloop network instead of maintaining the streets that they have, or instead of um, you know, putting effort into understanding the actual flows of traffic in their community and crafting legislation and regulation that might address the circumstances. Um, belief about the future folds the present toward it. And um, sometimes uh, this has what I would still regard as kind of powerfully beautiful effects. You know, when, when John F. Kennedy, you know, in his inaugural address says, you know, we do these things not because they're easy, but because they're hard, we're going to put a human being on the moon by the end of this decade. That is a belief about the future that catalyzes extraordinary, not merely material investments, but psychic investments. And lo and behold, it was made to happen. And if you regard that as part of me continues to regard it as sort of a benchmark accomplishment uh, of, of you know the upper limit of human aspiration, there's something really profoundly beautiful about that. But most of our beliefs about the future right now, as I've said, are tawdrier ones. And they're mostly about things that our machines will be able to do for us. And when these beliefs are enacted by, uh, you know, large-scale institutions like corporations and states, uh, we have a limited amount of ability to affect that. And I guess that's, to me, it's it's the weakest aspect of my book, um, which is that in some way it's still indulging itself in a liberal choice paradigm. It's still saying, well, you know, if only we understood these things better, we could make better choices about them. And we are not always structurally empowered to do so. As a matter of fact, part of my belief is that we're decreasingly able to do so. And that is an unresolved tension in, in the book and, frankly, in, in my thought beyond the book. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a tension in our, uh, in our experience. I mean, just using the example of the, the Tesla driver, for me, part of the, the charge of that as an allegory is just that that moment of decision to, to sort of take your attention off of the task and the trust that that involves, but also the kind of way that the that, that trust is manifested on a particular act of attention or a particular kind of tacit belief about what's going on. And I say that because I think one of the things that we can already see happening on just a sort of general life level, everyday level, is that as you explain in, in another chapter in the book, as algorithms and machine learning uh, and the interaction of these uh, of, of different systems uh, make more and more decisions for us or, you know, in, in our place, that there becomes this question of like, where do we locate agency? Where do we locate who like who's responsible for that? And I've I've noticed over the last couple of years, 
where, you know, I, like everybody else, get involved in these kind of nightmarish uh, phone tree call center problems about my credit <laughs> card or my or my airline or whatever it is. We all have these things happen, yeah. you know, relatively frequently. But I've noticed a weird shift, and, and it's partly something that I've done. Well, I'm in the conversation with the with the person, and we both start kind of talking about the system or the computer or it's not letting me do that or it's there's this kind of weird shift where it's not just about no you can do that or you can't do that or this is what's going on and sometimes it's like clear that nobody really knows you know the the credit the, the credit card company not just the person working at the call center but the manager does not know why the algorithms decided sure. to freeze that particular charge That's and right. so we get into this weird place where, like, I mean, as human beings, as people who grew up in, I mean, you know, as a as a, a a species that emerged in an environment where we're inside of a sometimes hostile, sometimes confusing environment where that has sort of agency, and so we develop stories about patterns in nature or about gods or about the forces that are that are animating the jungle or whatever the thing is like this is sort of how we work and now we're like facing these new forms of intelligence or at least decision making that we don't really have a any map for so we're just kind of erratically grabbing at at Disney movies and science fiction and <laughs> and uh, technological fantasies or or myths that have been promulgated by the technology industry about trusting them and reason and how rationality when it's but of course it's not really about reason or rationality because we don't understand what these things are why they're coming to the decisions that they are so could you talk a little bit about that weird kind of not knowing that is yeah. beginning to spread in our experience. Yeah, um, and remind me that I want to talk about this because I think there's something particularly pernicious for progressive people and, and people who like to think of themselves as, as the left in, in this. Um, so in order to understand this, we, we need to know a little bit about the way in which um, machine learning and neural networks specifically come together to constitute what's now thought of as, as artificial intelligence. Um, a neural network is a, a structure, a computational structure that attempts to mimic the way in which uh, nerve cells operate within the brain, and, and particularly to integrate perceptual experience um, and to derive um, understandings of the world from the, the raw sensory inf information that comes in through our afferent nerve cells. So there's, there's layers to a neural network, um, uh, the, the first neural, uh, the first node of a neural network may be connected to a camera, and it may just simply say, um, you know, am I looking at a white pixel or a black pixel? You know, am I looking at uh, two black pixels together? Um, and then each successive layer of the neural network is designed to recognize um, higher and higher order features of an image. If, if in fact, the neural network they were talking about is dedicated to, to, to uh, computer vision or image recognition. Um, and at the very bottom, way down, uh, you know, underneath 17 or 20 or 700 layers of integration and um, pattern recognition is, is some kind of gestalt, like, that is an individual's face, and this is the named individual that is in in the field of vision of this of this uh, you know CCTV camera or whatever. The trouble is, is that there's no way to reconstruct from out from outside that system exactly what 
quality or attribute ultimately tripped that recognition, um, particularly in something that's called a convolved neural network, uh, in which there's sort of um, loops, recursive loops back into the, the various layers of, of the neural network. Um, and this metaphorically and, and, and actually more and more literally is, is how uh, machine learning systems arrive at their complex determinations of things. So they will integrate information uh, across all of your available financial history when trying to make a decision about whether or not they're going to authorize an individual charge to your card. And these um, points of data might be things like, have you filled out an application in block capitals or have you, you know, mixed in lowercase letters or, you know, have you, uh, you know, tried to, to do it in script? Um, things that you don't necessarily think of as having behavioral implications or, or implications about your reliability or credibility. But it turns out that when you do a trawl through a population scale uh, database that, yeah, these, these things have correlations with behavior that the credit issuer regards as, as um, undesirable or unworthy of extension of credit. And these things get bound together in the neural network's operation to the point that it is able to arrive at a determination that, hey, you know, you um, charge something that ends in an odd digit on a Thursday, and that is just a bad pattern, and we're going to refuse you credit on that basis. But no human being has access to this. And as a matter of fact, there's no way to, to crack open the algorithm and find out what produced that, that weighting. Um, you know, Frank Pasquale calls this the black box operation. It's, it's, uh, it's just lost to potential review or inspection, which is what results in things like you talking to the call center worker and even maybe escalating the case, you know, to their supervisor. And nobody can figure out exactly why you've had the experience you have. Uh, you know, hopefully they have some kind of ex escalation procedure that will help you recover from it, but they, they can't reach into the black box. They can't make it account for itself. They can't make it speak. Um, and, and there really is nothing that I would regard as, as the potential for algorithmic accountability. And this here is the problem that confronts um, the children of the progressive movement, right, who believe that sunlight is the best disinfectant and that transparency is our ultimate bulwark against um, bad government and, and, and corruption. Um, when decisions are made by convolved neural networks, you know, there's this beautiful pilot regulation that's before the EU that is a series of standards for algorithmic accountability. And, and it's, you know, developed by extremely bright people who um, I would imagine have a great deal of technological understanding and yet have somehow missed the, the, the central implication of all this, which is that there's no way of asking for algorithmic accountability. These decision functions have absconded from our ken. They are making transrational decisions um, that, you know, their, their main justification is that, quote unquote, they work, right? That, that the, the algorithmic black box can uh, reliably identify bad credit risks, or it can reliably identify people who are likely to uh, be recidivists and, and to be back in prison after being released. Um, the sole justification that's ever offered for these things really is that they work. And the deepest irony there is that very often they don't actually work. Here is another instance in which the, the, the broad belief that these things are actually not merely effective, but more effective than the protocols and procedures that our societies relied upon before, uh, helps spread 
something which I think actively sorts of paints us out of the picture. And I think that is wildly problematic. And as yet, uh, very few people uh, with a progressive political background or coming from what I would regard as the left uh, have any way of approaching this that makes any sense to me at all. Yeah, yeah you said it. It's also just, it's such an irony, you know, whatever, five, 500 years of, uh, of, of science in the modern sense of, uh, you know, ra rationalities march through uh, the barbarism of history, you know, the emergence of, uh, of the par parliamentary form of decision making, of, of, of empirical study, of high theory. Of high and, and we get to this point where the, gr you know, the most advanced marvel of the age actively undermines our capacity not only to be give an account of its decisions but even to understand more about the world i mean those correlations are are bizarre and yet they they may work but they don't it's not because you can understand why finishing why writing in capital letters means that you're less likely to do it you can't figure that out either anyway we the unfortunately the clock uh, <laughs> on the wall uh, is is going to leave us with this this the, this can of worms completely open. The worms are everywhere, <laughs> scuttling about. Um, and I all I can do is uh, I, I once again encourage people to uh, to check out your book Radical Technologies. Uh, keep up with your stuff. You also have a uh, a website Speedbird. Uh, and I hope to see you when you uh, when you come through down here in, here in October. You'll be doing some events over the next month or so, so people That's should right. check those out as well. Thanks a lot, Eric. It's been a real pleasure. Well, thanks for being here, man. Uh, until next week, folks, keep your minds open.